Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Once Charlie Sykes was the king of conservative talk radio in Milwaukee and the state of Wisconsin, had a lot to do with the election of Scott Walker, of Ron Johnson, and the resurgence of Republican dominance there. But then in 2016, he split with the party over the nomination of Donald Trump, lost his radio gig, and set out in a new direction as the leader of the Republican and conservative resistance. He now runs a social media site called The Bulwark, which is a home for anti-Trump conservative writings and commentary. I sat down with Charlie this week to talk about his journey and the state of politics and conservatism today. Charlie Sykes, it's, it's really good to see you. There's so much to talk about that's going on right now, but your journey is really almost unique from uh, liberal and growing up in a really liberal household to uh, sort of the quintessential conservative talk show host. I remember what a power you were in Republican politics up there in Wisconsin. And now apostate, a very consistent voice about Trumpism and the dangers for the Republican Party. There's so much to talk about that's going on now, as I said, but let's review that incredible journey first uh, and explain how Charlie Sykes uh, got to this moment. And tell me a little bit about your folks. I was stunned to learn that your dad ran the McCarthy, Eugene McCarthy campaign in the state of Wisconsin in 1968, the anti-war iconic, liberal, democratic candidate. Tell me about your folks. That's, that, that's true. By the way, I, I think I should put a, apostate on my business cards because what else would I describe myself <laughs> as? Uh, no, it's... It's, um, yeah. it's not, not a bad thing. No, the... Uh, see, 1968 is still like the center of my political universe. And that's where I really got started into politics. I was in eighth grade. And not only was my dad the campaign manager for Eugene McCarthy... I remember in November of 1967, he and I and one other guy opened the first McCarthy headquarters in a crummy little room in the Wisconsin hotel. And there were just three of us. And so imagine you're an eighth grader and you start this and you're licking envelopes and this thing just kept growing and growing until, you know, after the New Hampshire primary, you had these thousands of kids descending on Wisconsin. And it was it was a heady experience. I I got the chance to uh, get to know uh, Senator McCarthy. And I think that kind of spoiled me about politics because I really thought that politicians could be like that as opposed to what we know they really are. 
What do you mean? Describe McCarthy as you remember him. Well, I remember him as being kind of a gentle soul, probably too gentle for that particular rough and tumble. But he was a man of such obvious principle and integrity and intelligence and eloquence. And that, that you know, that appealed to me. I thought that this was the kind of, and of course, he was running at that point against Robert F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy. And Bobby Kennedy was this iconic figure. So you, you look back on 1968 and everything felt larger than life. Now, of course, I'm a kid, yeah. so you would normally think that. But even in retrospect, it felt like that. And my dad actually brought me along to the Chicago convention. And I was a page. You were a page there, I heard. I was a page. And one of my proudest achievements at the time was because, of course, I, I, I realized this was this was a big deal that I decided I was going to get the Wisconsin banner. Remember when they used to have the, the cardboard yes, banner? Yes, sure. Stanchions, yes. And I, yeah. wanted, I wanted that stanchion. And sure enough, at the end of the convention, I you know, went through all the crowds, everything, grabbed that thing. And for many years, it was in our garage. I want to I ask you about that convention and your experience in, in Chicago. Before, I just want to back up a bit. What led your dad to be a, such a, a fervent progressive. I know that he served in the war and he went to law school and then he decided to become a journalist, which is what took you to your family to Wisconsin. Tell me about him as a person, because I know he was very formative in your life. Oh, very, very much so. No, you're right. He was he was a code breaker in World War II, uh, went to law school, was bored to death with being a lawyer and decided he was much more interested in politics and uh, um, had a series of uh, completely unsuccessful political runs. Uh, and ended up as a as an as a journalist and an editorial writer for the uh, the Milwaukee Sentinel, which no longer exists. And the Milwaukee Sentinel was uh, a very conservative publication, and he was the token liberal. So I think it was very it was kind of a stressful situation. So at a certain point, he left for academia, became a professor of journalism, became the president of the Wisconsin Civil Liberties Union, ran McCarthy's campaign. Uh, but he was always. He was very much a contrarian. I mean, he was yeah. uh, he was a free spirit. He was he was the opposite of the party apparatchik loyalist, and which is why I think he and McCarthy hit it off. He was very close with William Proxmire, our senator. In fact, he wrote Proxmire's yeah. biography um, because I think that they were they were gadflies. Yeah, yeah. Well, y- your dad I know passed away relatively young at sixty three. He he would probably be pretty happy about the role you're playing now for pure contrarianism, standing up to your party or the party that you identified with for so long. He ran for office as well, uh, ran for lieutenant governor in uh, Wisconsin. And spectacularly so. failed. You have to also understand that he also became, in the early 70s, he also became much more conservative. I think in reaction mm-hmm. to some of the excesses of the anti-war movement. And I think one of his turning points was when with student, uh, student demonstrators uh, tried to shut down his school at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and trash the library. And he was, he was repelled, even though his credentials, his anti-war liberal credentials were absolutely impeccable. He was very much uh, repelled by that. And I think began, he started moving to the right um, really almost before I did. Just about 1968, you talked about how it looms large in your memory. It also looms large in history. And a lot of people, myself included, because we're about the same age, 
uh, has have been thinking about 1968 in the last few weeks uh, as we've seen these protests all over the country around the issue of race. When you were a page at that convention in Chicago, there were anti-war protests and there were protests in the inner city of Chicago. Uh, you must have been aware of that as a 13-year-old boy. Well, that was my first encounter with tear gas, uh, just getting to and from just getting to and from the convention hall. So yes, and of course, we had had riots here in Milwaukee the year before. So this this was a time that, and, and, you, and you're right. I, I often it does feel like a little bit of a flashback to then because you had the sense that things were falling apart and that uh, make you know, great issues were very much in play. So let me ask you about today in that context. Obviously, the '60s were uh, an era of ferment about civil rights. And there was progress made in the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act. But now we find ourselves having discussions. I mean, I, as a young reporter, and you became a reporter, uh, I covered the issues of police brutality 45 years ago, 47 years ago. A lot of the issues that are being contested and protested today are the same ones that we were talking about 50 years ago. From your perspective, how do we take the next step? How do we get beyond this? How do we deal with a legacy that just haunts us to this day? Well, I think the shock that we're experiencing now is that we didn't move as far beyond that as we thought. That I think a lot of people on the right felt that we had turned a page on race relations. Um, and we did make some progress, but, but, but I think on a daily basis, we find how far we have to go. And I, you know, and I, I will say, I, but I, when I was a journalist, I wrote a long magazine story about uh, police misconduct uh, in, I think it was in, in the 1980s. So it was not something that I was naive about. But even I have to admit that the extent of the violence, the extent of what's been happening has been shocking. And, and I'm, I'm not proud to say that the variable here is the videotape. And let's face it, you know, we are confronted mm -hmm. with it. It is not possible to deny it. It's not possible to rationalize it. You know, and I, I know that that um, a lot of people on the right have spent the last 20 years essentially saying, look, um, we need to side with the police about this. If, if you don't want to, uh, if you don't want to get shot, you just need to uh, not break the law. You need to cooperate. And I think that that, that illusion and delusion has been has really been shattered. So I I'm hearing from a lot of people, um, you know, uh, on the right, who are as disillusioned and stunned by this as anyone else. That doesn't mean that the the, the Trump world will react that way. He obviously sees this as a, uh, and you've ri you wrote about this the other day. He sees this as a moment to further mine the cultural divides that he thinks animates his campaign. You suggested in your piece that he's misreading the moment. I think he is misreading the moment. I mean, I think that, that he thinks that if he keeps going back to the same playbook of, you know, playing the, you know, playing the, 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 the race card, standing behind the police, etc., the law and order card, that it'll have the same reaction that it's had so many times in the past, that he'll get 1968 or 1972 all over again. But this is where I think his instincts are failing him because something has shifted, and you can just you can feel that um, that you know as a, even even though and I've described him as having sort of a reptilian instinct or reptilian cunning, yes. and he, he thinks he has mm -hmm. the he knows 
uh, how to exploit the divisions in the cultural war. Um, and it's not working this this time. I, I, I do think that he's misreading misreading the moment badly. One place where he's misreading the moment is in suburban communities. You know, I look at your state, Wisconsin, and the to borrow a, a, a word you're fond of, the bulwark of uh, of republicanism in Wisconsin were the suburban areas around Milwaukee, and they're still republican areas, but they they're, they're shifting. You had a very uh, significant Supreme Court race in uh, March there that pitted a, a a very liberal candidate against a sitting justice of the Supreme Court that was quite conservative. The liberal won and did far better in some of those suburban areas than was customary for these kinds of races. Trump has actually shifted or accelerated a shift in these areas, has he not? No, he really has. Uh, the so-called wow counties in Wisconsin, you know, Waukesha, Zaki, Washington County, kind of the legendary counties, used to be just overwhelmingly uh, Republican. I mean, and they were they were so Republican that they could counter big Democratic margins from Milwaukee and Waukesha. Um, but you're not seeing that anymore. You're, you are seeing the erosion here that you saw elsewhere. Now, I, I have to be honest with you, though, um, you know, this is where I do think that folks on the left and the Democratic Party need to be somewhat cautious because the when many of these voters here defund the police or abolish the police um, or watch, um, you know, police stand back in places like Madison, they do go back to uh, some of their roots. So there's a little bit of a risk there. But I'm over the weekend. I think you know Joe Biden has made it clear he's not going to defund the the police and uh, James Clyburn. This is very very important. The reason I'm mentioning this here, very important when you're talking about these suburban voters. It's not clear really what the word means because it means different things to different people. But uh, and you're right, Biden was quick to renounce the word. Everybody's talking about, and I, I think it makes sense. You probably think it makes sense about sort of reimagining how we uh, approach public safety, about making some investments elsewhere to get at some of the root issues that we see. There seems more to be more, and I'm interested for, as your, from your perspective as a conservative, but there seems to be more receptivity to that idea, that it's not just about the relationship between police and community, but it's about larger issues that we just haven't addressed. No, and I think there's this moment right now where I think that there is this cross-partisan willingness to ask these questions. You know, look at issues like qualified immunity. Ask, you know, how does the criminal justice system really work? You know, are the police really there to serve and protect? And, um, and you're seeing this reflected in the polls, and I think you're seeing this reflected in conversations that people have with one another. Uh, and again, should you know, we probably shouldn't have taken videotapes uh, to get to this moment, but uh, that's, that's where we are. But you know, Charlie, this is sort of the, uh, I was having this discussion the other day with somebody else. This is kind of the way history works. You know, Emmett Till's mother leaves the coffin open and people see how brutally beaten and savaged he was. John Lewis and the protesters get brutally beaten by Bull Connor in Selma. These kinds of images galvanize a country. And I think that's what that horrific video from Minneapolis uh, did. Let's just return to your story. We'll, we'll, we've got plenty more to talk about about where we are today. You found your way following in your father's footsteps into journalism. What what led you there? Um, 
you know that that that's that's a good question. I was an English literature major in college, and apparently, you know, and, and at some point decided that perhaps uh, there was n- no career path whatsoever. This was the least practical major. You didn't just want to set up like a little corner English literature store, uh, and uh, be- you know, I, I went to work for a <laughs> weekly newspaper, and then was hired by the daily newspaper, uh, the Milwaukee Journal, and uh, quickly became the city hall reporter. And I think you and I talked about this. I have to say, yes. looking back on it. That was the best job I ever had. I enjoyed daily journalism. I enjoyed the deadlines really more than anything else. I've had better jobs, better paying jobs, um, jobs with better hours. But just for the pure fun of doing it, I loved being a reporter. I loved uh, asking questions. I loved making trouble. I loved the investigation. I loved breaking stories. Uh, and I think that that's that's a anyone who's gone through it knows that that's a formative experience and, and everything else kind of is a little bit paler. Yeah, no, I, I loved every bit of it. And uh, I, you, you and I both had the experience of covering larger than life characters. I covered, uh, well, several. Uh, I had Richard J. Daly for a brief time, but Jane Byrne and then Harold Washington in Chicago. You ha- you covered an iconic uh, mayor, Henry Meyer, who uh, was there for 20 Eight years and uh, really ruled over that town. And you, you, you said you say, not exaggerating that you loved making trouble. You made a lot of trouble uh, when you were there, and you really challenged City Hall. But tell me about covering Mayor Meyer there, who's still remembered in Milwaukee as a legendary figure. Well, he was a very eccentric guy, and um, I, you know, I was in my early twenties, and he had already been mayor for nearly twenty years, and. Um, to say that he was a little bit paranoid is putting it mildly, uh, kind of a little bit Nixonian in a, in a way, and absolutely hated the media. So he was, even almost before Agnew, he was running against the left-wing media. So we would have press conferences where he would, re- you know, he would refuse to answer my questions and um, because of the bias. But, um, I, you know, and I, and, I, and I found the... I, I, I found the role of being a journalist as being, you know, someone who would challenge and dig and, and not be cowed by, uh, you know, someone like this. Because very easily, I mean, he tried to, I mean, you know, part of his strategy was to call you in and, you know, unleash a string of, you know, obscenities at you and explain what he was, you know, the anatomical things he would do to you. And I'm 22 years old, <laughs> and I could have like, okay, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry, Mr. Mayor, to do this. But it was like, screw this, you know. I didn't. What is the point? So I, I think that that was uh, that was where my contrarian streak helped me uh, a good deal. Yeah. No, I had the same. You know, Mayor Byrne uh, was unhappy with my coverage and threatened to banish me from City Hall, which obviously had some legal. There were legal barriers uh, to that, but uh, it was exhilarating to shine a bright light in those dark corners. And when you have a long-term mayor like Meyer, uh, you know, he's not accustomed to that kind of scrutiny. So I'm sure you, as a little whippersnapper, were not well-received over there. But you left. You left after, uh, what, six years or so? Well, yeah, yeah, I think about six years. Uh, it was about six years. Mm-hmm. I, I had the chance to go work for a uh, city magazine, uh, which also had a hard edge to it. And uh, 
that was uh, a, a longer form, although I, I, will, I will admit that it was a culture shock going from a daily newspaper to a monthly magazine. Yeah, what that that has to be. Like I used to walk around the newsroom until about 2 hours before my piece was due and then I'd frantic furiously write the piece, but I needed the deadline to uh, get me going. Uh, I I would have a hard time making that transition to full-time magazine writing. No, for some reason I just sort of w- went from the uh ultimate at least at that time the ultimate uh uh, instant gratification, which is you write a story at eleven o'clock in the morning and it was out on the street by you know one fifteen to do going to a, a magazine where it's once a month and then I started writing books, which means you write something and then you wait a year for it to be published yes. so um it's 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 more enjoyable to do podcasts and things on a daily website where it feels more like daily journalism than a lot of things I'd spent the last few years doing. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. You talked earlier about your father's transition to conservatism. You've said yourself that what happened at the University of Wisconsin in 1970, where buildings were blown up, was a impetus. But over time, you made a full transition. Tell me about that. I think that was certainly part of it. And I think part of it was seeing a lot of the uh, social programs of the of of the era, the, the the Great Society and some of the things that Jimmy Carter was doing and watching it. They, they you know, coming to the conclusion, they just didn't work. They they weren't succeeding. Many of these these experiments, when you see them up close, um, w- w- uh, the gap between the intention and the reality. So I think I became more skeptical of government. Um, I'm not sure that that pushed me completely over the line, uh, but I think that that was one where, uh, and I, I can certainly remember in the late 1970s that I would ask questions. Is this really a good idea? Is this a, you know, and I would be denounced like, well, you can't say these things, you know, that you sound like a right winger, you sound like a conservative. And initially that was like horrible and Shocking. Then I realized, well, maybe I am. And again, I was, you know, the I I was kind of willing at that point to uh, say things that that at least felt very unorthodox at the time. You know, um, I often think that we sometimes get too wedded to means rather than ends, and that if things don't work, that you ought to try something else. But I also think that there are. And we're seeing it again in a really dramatic way. There are endemic inequities in our society, in our country, in our economy that sort of make a mockery of the notion that if you just work hard, you'll get ahead. Some people face barriers that are very, very difficult to uh, traverse, and people of color have generally faced these huge barriers. Poor people tend to stay poor in this country. So what what do you put in place of those well-intended programs that you discard? Yeah, well, that that's the good question. And that, of course, is something that I wrestled with over the next 20 years or so. And one of the things that I, I kept talking about, even when I became a conservative radio talk show host and became really quite conservative and maybe part of that movement, was um, inner city school choice. 
and Milwaukee was kind of ground zero there. And there were some folks uh, from the Bradley Foundation that played a, a key role in all of that. And I was very closely associated with them. And I really convinced myself that that was the civil rights movement of the of the 1990s, that's, that sort of thing, to break the monopolies uh, to to, you know, to break the, the 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 opposition to uh, reform that you often had from the teachers unions, and um, I would like to say that was more successful than in, in reality was, but th- that was certainly one of the ways that I looked at it was which was um, I want schools that are going to be more effective. No one should be forced to go to a failing bad school. So I actually felt that I was in a more reformist place by moving right on some of those issues. Yeah. As you point out, privately run schools have had mixed results, uh, just as public schools have had mixed results. I do think, you know, I I mean, I'm a pro-labor person. I do think that teachers unions have been a barrier at times to reforms that are necessary, just as, by the way, police unions have been a barrier to reforms that are necessary. And we're seeing that in in stark uh, relief. You wrote you wrote a book in 2012 called A Nation of Moochers, America's Addiction to Getting Something for Nothing. Uh, and I, I'm wondering, put that put that book in the context of where we are today. Are there things that you would rethink about that? You've made it clear that you think that there are programs that fail, but there are also programs that are necessary. You see it during this COVID-19 disaster, people relying on unemployment insurance, food stamps, and other things. Well, if you flip over to the back of, of that book, A Nation of Moochers, you'll see that the, 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 the blurb is from Paul Ryan. And afterwards, I think both he and I went, boy, you know what, that whole makers versus takers thing, um, uh, a little bit overstated. And so, yeah, that is not a book that I think I would write these days. Uh, but about half of that book is devoted to corporate welfare and to the special interests with their hands out. And to that extent, that that still holds up pretty well under Donald Trump's kleptocracy, where you're you're seeing the 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 administration rewarding its you know, the people who are politically well connected because those folks are moochers as well. Um, you know, some of those major corporations, but yeah, I think that uh, you know when when you think about you know what it's like to be vulnerable to understand. Um, the number of people who are living absolutely on the margin. They are one car breakdown away from losing their job and their livelihood, you know, one financial setback away from being evicted from their apartment, um, unable to access health insurance. This is not about moochers. This is about whether or not you have a society that in fact is focused uh, not on some abstract principle, but on providing opportunity and help for people yeah. who need that help. So I would think that, unfortunately, uh, that book lacked the kind of empathy that I wish it would have had. And um, um, sort of parenthetically, I think it probably contributed to uh, one of Mitt Romney's worst moments when he talked about the 47% who were the takers in society. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, there were a couple uh. of articles that sort of linked my approach to his on on all of that. But yeah, I think that was, you know, part of what I think the conservative movement had done was to cultivate a certain amount of insensitivity, a certain amount of you're on your own. That was one thing to talk about the ownership society, which I, I found very, very appealing when Jack Kemp talked about it. It's something else when it's like, you know what, 
Um, if you're not doing well, it's your fault, and we have no obligation to do anything for you. And and I I I think that's a, that was uh, that was reflected a bit in that book, particularly in a society where uh, everyone's opportunity to be rewarded for their work, to get ahead, and so on, is not equal. And we know that, and that's really central to the discussion we're having right now. Well, that, that's right. And and you know, I mean, back when I when I wrote that, I was uh, I was a big believer in the mobility of American society. That that it, that if you did certain things that in fact you could overcome many of these barriers. And I think that that was naive and wrongheaded to a certain extent. Sure, I mean, obviously there are a lot of ways in which you can change your socioeconomic situation, but the deck is so badly stacked. You mentioned that your transition, and I started at the top by referencing this. I mean, you're, you're a legend in Milwaukee. You were on the radio there for a quarter of a century. And uh, you were, in fact, when you pointed to, when people pointed to conservative talk radio, Charlie Sykes was one of the names that always came up because you were such a dominant voice at a very dominant radio station in the state of uh, Wisconsin. Tell me about that transition. What attracted you to it? And how do you reflect on those years uh, now? It does seem like a different life, I'll be honest with you, um, at, at this point. And I got into radio completely by accident. Um, I had been writing, and uh, I think I'd finished my first book or maybe my second book, and I was asked to do some backup work. And then one of the hosts at one of the stations um, was busted for soliciting a prostitute. It's the old story. And so they asked me to come <laughs> in, and I, and I, and I, and I stayed around. Um, I don't, you know... <laughs> Part of it was, I think in the beginning, I really thought that we were just simply creating an alternative voice. And to the extent that the rest of the media decided to ignore the things that we were talking about and not speak to it, they kind of opened the field for us that we were the only people talking about these sorts of issues. And so they ceded to us the monopoly. So for example, as the population was moving out of Milwaukee, going into the wow counties, much of the rest of the media instead kind of just ignored them and, and focused on other things. So, um, it, I, again, I, I the way it morphed, though, and I, I'm, now I'm going to sort of fast forward here, I really did think that we were um, a thoughtful alternative. And I really kind of flattered myself and the audience into saying, look, I, folks have a great deal of common sense. They are very sophisticated. And up until 2015, 2016, I, I really did think that Wisconsin people had a level of engagement that was different than um, anywhere else in the country. And of course, you know, they didn't buy Trump uh, during the primary. So what crept up on me was the way in which the conservative media um, in general had become an alternative reality silo. Um, and had broken down immunity to other points of view in our audience. And I know that I contributed to that, but that doesn't lessen the shock. I mean, when I thought, what do I do in the morning? Well, I'm going to sit here, I'm going to read a George Will column, or I'm going to talk about what Charles Krauthammer had to say, or back before the Wall Street Journal editorial board lost its mind, look at their analysis of all this, and then let's talk about this not trying to be a Rush Limbaugh at all. And the audience liked it, and they went along with it. But um, it apparently was much thinner on the ground than I would have liked to have believed. 
Midwestern Republicanism was a very genteel kind of Republicanism, a very moderate kind of Republicanism for generations. You kind of coined the phrase rhinos, which is now used against you, Republicans in name only. And so, you know, that... Am I responsible for that? That's kind of shocking. Well, I didn't say... I'm not, I'm not entirely uh, ascribing it to you, but, I, but, but, it's, but it's something that you... These are references that you made. And, I mean, you, you know, the fact is, one of the ways that you guys and anybody, frankly, but Donald Trump has discovered this too, if you're, you know, the more incisive you are, the more cutting and biting you are, you're good listening. You refer to Janet Reno's Justice Department as not unlike Nazi Germany and, and you know, stuff like that. That is a familiar kind of meme in conservative talk radio. And now you've formed a site called The Bulwark. You have two podcasts there. The Bulwark is really, really good reading. And I, I try and keep up because it is thoughtful. I don't always agree with everything you guys write, but it's thoughtful. And you talk about civil discourse. And I'm wondering how the Charlie Sykes of today reconciles with the Charlie Sykes of, you know, some of your hotter moments back in the day when you were ruling talk radio in, in uh, Milwaukee. Well, I, I'm not sure I, I ruled it. They, they, we had a culture. Well, don't be in this. No time for false modesty. No, 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 no. We had a culture of there were like, <laughs> there were like five uh, conservative talk shows that were all, you know, really pretty successful here. So, you know, and and I tried not to be necessarily like all of those, but but it's that's still a fair question, David. And I ask myself this all the time: um, Did I, you know, wh- why did I get drawn into that kind of tribalism? Because okay, so I'm talking about being a contrarian, but you know, at a certain point, you get drawn into this. And talk radio has its its greatest hits. It has its themes. And I think one of the really wrenching things of the Trump era is hearing some of the things that we probably talked about, but sort of played back to us in the crudest, most naked, bizarro sort of way. So I recognize it and I say, okay, is this the kind of thing that I was saying or, you know, did I was I dressing it up in a way that. Um, that I didn't understand how dumb it was at the time, or or the or the way that it would be heard. So um, you know, these are tough times. I know for people on the left, but I got to tell you, it was soul crushing to go through this, to watch the people who'd listened to you for twenty years buy into this, and then belatedly after I left the show, have to go back and say, to what extent did I contribute to this? Because I didn't think so. I mean, I in 2016, I thought we were going to stop Donald Trump. I thought there's no way people are going to buy into any of this stuff. On your show, you actually had a, uh, a pretty brisk and uh, pointed exchange with him when he was passing through Wisconsin, running in the Wisconsin primary. Well, it turned out to be kind of a, a turning point. Uh, but it, for me, it was just a culmination of six months of almost every single day saying, you know, don't do this, people. Really, this is not who we are. He's a caricature of everything they say about us. You know, for 20 years, they've been saying that we are racist and misogynist and all of this stuff. And here comes along this cartoon image of everything they've said about us. Don't validate this. So uh, he calls in on March, I, what it was, 28th, 2016. I didn't think he was going to call my show. If, if they had spent 10 seconds doing any research, they would have known I was never Trump. But he did call in. 
And I asked him some of the things that uh, were in my mind, like, you know, why do you talk about, I mean, ironically enough, you know, why does somebody who wants the job that Abraham Lincoln once held, why do you spend time making fun, mocking uh, the the looks of Ted Cruz's wife? That was the thing in the in the air, you know, like seriously, you want to be president, you sound like an eight year old on the playground. Um, so this got a lot of attention. Yeah, and he and he said, and his and his response was, as he has in many other occasions, well, he started it. I know he was he was pure Trump. And, you know, the good news is that he lost badly in Wisconsin, but then as the year went on, um, the people who listened to me uh, decided that uh, the the centrifugal forces or the gravitational pull of partisanship meant that they were going to buy into Trump, and uh, very disillusioning. So you asked me actually a very pointed question about civility, and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's there's, 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 there's no question about it. I don't think that I would like to go back and listen to um, some of my shows. You know, I ask you about it, not, not as an indictment, but because I'm trying to work my way through an environment now in which we are all siloed and in which, uh, you know, this, this podcast began as a, a place where I could have conversations with people of different points of view and people could learn who they were and we could sort of take the dehumanization out of it and, uh, and have real conversations. It is so much harder today to, to do that uh, because people on the left say, well, why would you have that person on your podcast? And people on the right say, why would you go on that podcast? And so, you know, you and I can have good faith differences about how we might approach problems. We probably wouldn't have good uh, differences about, you know, fundamental facts, uh, which has become a problem today, because the president and his supporters are pretty um, invested in their version of facts and events. And when they're inconvenient, they change them. But my, my point is, how do we uh, find that place where we can have good faith discussions again? You know, it really worries me, Charlie. Well, and, 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 it, and it's a crucial question. I will tell you, after after I left uh, the radio show, the, the, the first, first time I was able to have a conversation like this, I mean, it, it, it did feel extraordinarily liberating to have a conversation across the line where you simply weren't use, using language as a cudgel. And I, and I think that, you know, when I think back on, I was, I was on the air for 23 years. And for some of that time, we did try, I did, would have Democrats on and liberals on. And we did, and I, have a, I had a weekly television show and we always had a mixed panel. And the conversations were, were civil. But I think that as time went on, uh, it became more and more red versus blue. And instead of having a discussion like what you're describing, uh, it was how do we provide ammunition and use our shows as cudgels? And uh, the, the contrast between that and, and sort of the world that I'm trying to live in now, which is like, can we actually have these reasoned discussions? Um, it, it's, it's a very dramatic contrast. But I can still see back, you know, when I listen to conservative talk radio or I watch Fox News, I can recognize the world and I can recognize what it is that that you're you're striking certain notes, you're playing certain hits, you're running through certain memes and narratives, you're creating a safe space for your audience, and the the goal is always to defend your team and demonize the other team. 
and the playbook is very obvious to me. And so um, I see everything that I've written about about this alternative media. I think everything is getting worse at the moment. That playbook was written by uh, Roger Ailes. And, you know, I knew Roger. We competed against each other when I was a political consultant, when I was a media consultant. Uh, and I knew him in later years when I worked for Obama. He understood that better than anyone that I know. He uh, he saw those fault lines. He knew how to mine those fault lines. Uh, and he created a, uh, you know, this this incredibly profitable machine for Rupert Murdoch along the way. But, you know, Trump has taken it to another level. It's kind of interesting now, isn't it, to watch Trump say, well, Fox News is not Trumpy enough. Well, he's, yeah, he would, he would like it to be his own state-owned media. No, but it is... The, I can't remember who it was. I think it was John Favreau who identified this early on. Under To understand Donald Trump, you have to understand he's the first real talk radio candidate. His entire presidency is like what would play on talk radio today. Not the best shows, the worst shows, the worst, lowest common denominator shows. And he has that. He, he knows what buttons to push. Um, so th- it is impossible. But, you know, I mean, Again, I'm not trying to to rationalize this, but let me tell you why a lot of this came as such a shock to me. And a lot of your listeners, you know, will be as appalled by this as anything else. But I thought the future of the Republican Party and the kind of person that I would have on my show was a guy like Paul Ryan. Um, And, you know, as a reformist and what Paul was going through in the latter years where he was actually after he lost in 2012, he was going around on a tour of central cities to try to understand um, what was going on. He was making this effort to start to listen. You know, he was he had moved past the makers and takers stuff. Uh, he was spending time with a guy named Robert Woodson, and and I I thought you know here's a is a smart guy. You can disagree with Paul, and I know you disagree with Paul, but I think he was a fundamentally decent person. To watch him be swept away by Trumpism. These are like two polar opposite views of the future of the party. And, you know, by the end of 2016, to watch as Republicans in Wisconsin decisively rejected Paul Ryan and embraced Donald Trump was an extraordinary thing. And I think the Republican Party has simply accelerated this, where they've gone dumber, meaner, cruder, um, you know, across the board. I thought there'd be more resistance to what Trump was trying to do. Trump hasn't changed, but he's changed the party and the grassroots in a way that is that is going to have long, long-term uh, damage. Yeah, I wanted to ask you that. What I mean, Trump may be gone in January. He certainly will be gone four years from January, if not January, increasingly looking like it will be January. But what happens next in the Republican Party? Because... First of all, he's not going to go away. I mean, he he may hijack another media outlet and use that as his base, but he's going to be out there agitating. What is the future for the Republican Party that Charlie Sykes in his heart of hearts would love to see versus the Republican Party that is today? I don't consider myself a Republican anymore, mainly because I don't want to be part of any tribe. Um, I don't think whatever I, I would hope it would be is, is something that I'm going to get or, or, or we're going to see. And this is why, and you, you pointed out, number one, Trump doesn't go away. And in, in Trumpian politics, and I hope I can articulate this, you know, the, the, uh, the grievance politics 
doesn't mind losing. Um, I, I know this may sound a little bit paradoxical because he's all about winning and everything, but if, you know, th this style of politics is all about indulging your feelings, feeling aggrieved, and therefore actually having responsibility is not necessarily an asset. So, uh, you know, his folks are still going to be out there unless there's a, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, overwhelming landslide victory, but he don't even count on that. And I think that the way the party has shown its willingness to be adapted, that's going to be hard to come back from because you're going to have people like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley, um, you know, Trump, you know, perhaps a little bit more competence uh, coming along. Plus, I think what we've just discovered is what the Republican base is prepared to accept. Because look, I mean, they're not about fiscal responsibility or free trade. Uh, they're not about, you know, being more inclu inclusive. I mean, wh what is it? it? It is about this tribal loyalty and whoever taps in with a grievance and makes them feel they you know, because Trump can never lose, right, David? He, he can only be betrayed. Right. You know, he, yeah. he, he, can, only, he can only be cheated. So um, you will have an angrier, uh, an angry, bitter, aggrieved uh, party that will see itself as victimized. And then, of course, they will do what they do best. And, and I certainly know this. Uh, they will unite in opposition to whatever the Democrats in power do, because that's really that's their natural thing. They're, they really do know. They may not be clear about what they're for, but they're definitely clear about what they're against. And now a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. What has been like for you? You know, now you you appear on MSNBC, you run the bulwark, which is often critical of the president. Uh, you know, what do your old friends uh, say to you? I should have gone back and looked at what your social media feed is like, but I'm sure that it's not all bouquets and hugs and kisses. No, I I, I, w I wish I had old friends um, anymore. Uh, no, there's there's been an alienation, and you know by the end of 2016, I mean I felt I was being excommunicated. And by the way, I understand why others have been un, you know unwilling to break with Trump, because it's not just that you take a position. I mean you could you lose your whole social universe. I mean we talk about tribalism, but tribalism is a network of people, a network of of folks who um, you know are part of your support network. They're your friends and. And in the current environment, you break with Trump and, and it's gone. I'm not playing a victim card here. Um, I, what I do say about some of my, my old friends, like, say, let's say, Paul Ryan, is that we're, we're taking a break from one another and seeing other people. So um, <laughs> I hope at some point there'll be some conversation about, like, that was some crazy shit. Um, I, 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 will, I will say that it's, 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 it's been hard to realize that uh, I am l really, frankly, disliked and despised by many of the people that listened to me for 20 years and decided that, uh, the, you know, support of Trump was the mountain they were willing to die on. Did you have to leave that show? I mean, could you have kept on doing that show? Well, there's a yes and no there. Uh, I actually had another year on my contract, so it was completely voluntary. I decided to do it long before the election for personal reasons. But I don't know the answer to your question about could I have actually continued it. We, what, what would have happened 
um, it, you know, if in 2017, if I'd continued to say what I was, you know, thinking and was going to say about Trump, um, I would have lost the audience. Um, it would have been every single day going in and realizing that it was swimming upstream. There was, you know, before Trump, there was, there were, you know, maybe one or two issues where I knew that I was crossways with the audience, but it was very rare. Uh, so it would have been incredibly painful, and it, it probably would have ended badly. Yeah, you would have been like Howard Beale at the end of his, uh, at the end there, when you change your point of view and lose your audience, which was, which is unacceptable to to. Uh, to the broadcasters. They were invested in Charlie Sykes as Charlie Sykes was, not Charlie Sykes, the critic of Trump. No, no. And so, I mean, right near the end of, uh, of, of 2016, um, and, and you know, frankly, I didn't think it was going to be as bad as it was. So when I left in December of 2016, um, you know, I had every every Republican you can think of, you know, called into the show and participated in the farewells and um, I was at a, at a at a dinner, and I'm standing next to Tommy Thompson and the various members of the congressional delegation. Former governor, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I look back on that now and realize, you know, that that now I I mean, th- this is like a, a completely different world because they've all. Now, I don't know about Tom. I don't want to pick on Tommy, but they they've all gone, you know, full Trump. Um, Ron Johnson. I mean, what the hell? And Scott yeah. Walker is become Charlie Kirk on Twitter, and it it. it you know, I know that Rick Wilson says, you know, everything Trump touches dies. But um, to watch this transformation up close, people that I've known for many years, has been amazing. Um, so yeah, it's it, it is it's not it's not been it's not been fun. The the part that's the strangest for me though are the ones who say you sold out. See now you get to go to all these cocktail parties in Georgetown. I'm sitting in my freaking basement here in Mequon, Wisconsin. I'm not going to any parties anywhere. And so, um, you know, when you when you when you lose your entire universe, that's not that's not necessarily a a way of you know cashing in. So let me tax your uh, Wisconsin insights because Wisconsin could well be ground zero in uh, 2020. Joe Biden has held a steady but small lead in polling in Wisconsin, uh, rarely over 50. And if you talk to people on both sides, they say, well, there are a lot of unregistered white voters who fit the Trump profile. They might play uh, a role here. I mean, how do you size up the situation? Or has Donald Trump over the last three months just sealed his fate in your in your view? I, I, don't, I don't think it's over. I think it will be closer in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin is, keep in mind that, that I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but we're very close to Michigan in having some of the, the lowest percentage of uh, college-educated voters in the electorate. Um, I'm not seeing tremendous erosion of support um, in, the, in the hardcore Trump base. But going back to our earlier conversation, he's lagging in the key suburbs and he's going to have to, for Trump to win, he's going to have to come up with these unregistered white rural voters in northern and western Wisconsin. And I don't know that there are enough of them to counter. The big variable in Wisconsin is the intensity of the Democratic vote. Um, Madison and Dane County, um, no question about it, they have been turning out in massive numbers. They actually turned out for Hillary Clinton. Milwaukee being more of a question. 
but I think that if uh, if anything, that Supreme Court election that you mentioned was an indication that uh, Democratic enthusiasm is extremely high, and they're doing a much better job here in turning out the vote. It used to be that Republicans, this is one of the legacies of, of Reince Priebus and Paul Ryan and Scott Walker, is they created this massive get-out-the-vote effort here in Wisconsin, um, and they were way better than the Democrats at it. I'm not sure that's the case anymore. First of all, they're all gone, and the Democrats appear to be quite aroused. So I think I think Wisconsin is, uh, I agree it's going to be a tipping point, but I think it's going to be very close here. You know, on this, this subject of turning out the vote, you witnessed what happened in Wisconsin before the primary. The governor wanted to postpone the primary, as other governors did, because of COVID-19. Uh, the legislature overruled him, and the Supreme Court, the state Supreme Court, uh, upheld the legislature. State, state Supreme Court has a, uh, a conservative Republican majority, uh, even though it's a nonpartisan office, ostensibly. And and what happened was there was a huge, I think 80% of the vote was done by mail, absentee ballots. But in the city of Milwaukee, there were 170 polling places. They shrunk, They only were able to open five. Now there's this big battle over this write-in voting. What's going to happen there? And what, from your perspective, you know, it's striking to me, Republicans used to love absentee ballots. They used to be great at it. It was a big strength of Republicans. Now it's become a sin to vote by mail. How do you interpret all of this and the impact it might have? Yeah, I think that the there's going to be a lot of backlash to what happened. Um, those scenes from Milwaukee, I think, were pretty horrific. I think you're going to have a backlash in Wisconsin like the backlash in Georgia. Uh, to to all of this, um, uh, you know, part part of it is is that our politics in Wisconsin is incredibly dysfunctional, and uh, I'll be honest with you, I think the uh, the the Democratic governor here could have handled that a lot better. Um, the Republican legislature, you know, was you know performed the way they usually f- perform. Um, but to your point about the mail in voting, I think one of the most dangerous things Republicans are doing right now is saying the quiet part out loud about not wanting the maximum number of people to vote. Um, the, the the way that voter suppression uh, has become just part of the routine of Republican politics now, and the way that people will openly talk about it, that, if, you know, I mean, when Donald Trump says, you know, if everybody's allowed to vote, we would never have a Republican winning again. Well, if, if that's the mentality, then you're in a very dangerous place politically. So um, I'm also very, very concerned about the November election and whether or not, um, and, and, and whether or not we're going to have a, a replay of 2000, you know, with the hanging chads and uh, controversy about that. Well, you pointed out that, uh, you know, there are two outcomes uh, as far as president's concerned. Either he wins or it's stolen. There's no third option. So, you know, uh, if all of this adds to, and, you know, look, there are malign forces all over the world, starting with the Russians, who will rush in and, uh, no pun intended, and and try and influence people's thinking about the integrity of the election. No, um, and that's and th- that's exactly the way I'm, con- I'm concerned about it, because the damage can be long term where it's not just the who wins and who loses, but but whether or not there will be a concerted effort to delegitimize the election and to delegitimize our democracy. And I think that that's another one of the prices we're paying from from Donald Trump. So, you know, I mean, one of the things that I've said over and over again 
is that, you know, Trump is awful, and I've made it clear where I stand on Donald Trump. But to a certain extent, Donald Trump doesn't bother me because, I mean, I'm going to be back up. Trump is Trump. He is exactly who we thought he was going to be. He is living his life. He's doing his thing. The, the worst damage that's being done, though, are by all the people who have enabled him and the damage he's done to the political culture, the damage he can do to our constitutional norms. And he's being allowed to do this. So at the end of four years, if, if, if he finally leaves office, but he's left these constitutional norms in tatters, the country as bitterly divided as ever, and the legitimacy of our democracy question, this will be a horrific legacy. And you can't separate that from the, what the Republican Party has allowed him to do and therefore what the Republican Party has become. Back in January or in February after the impeachment, uh, his numbers were rising. The economy looked strong. And the speculation was he's in relatively good shape uh, for reelection. Uh, how do you rate his chances now? It is interesting. You think back to what you were thinking three months ago, what the world looked like three months ago. Look, maybe I suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder like everybody else, uh, having had experienced what happened in, in 2016. But it does feel as if you have multiple collapses. If at the moment the American people were paying attention to him, you have the uh, economic problems, you have his mishandling of the coronavirus, you have his tone-deaf approach to the issues that are dividing us on, on race, and he's not getting any of those right. Now, he can spin those. He'll get his base behind him. He'll play the victim card. But how do you get reelected if you have double-digit unemployment, 150,000 dead Americans, and the country realizing that you are just have no empathy for um, the divisions that we're experiencing right now? So I think he's on the wrong side of all of those. And, you know, it's one thing to vote for a guy who's going to be the chaos candidate who will burn it all down. It's another thing to realize that you're living in the country and it's burning down. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling Yeah, it's hard optimistic. to be the law and order candidate when you flout the laws and create disorder wherever you go. I don't know how you yeah, win. When Richard you know, Nixon ran on the law and order platform, he wasn't the president. 150,000 dead Americans. Uh, Donald Trump and the is country the president. So bitterly divided over he's not race helping, you know, the president's here. on the so wrong side I think of it's all a really tough issues. road to hoe. And as you point out, you know, the base is not big enough. He needs to add to the base and he is shrinking his possibilities by the day. Charlie Sykes, you're a good man. It's Good to talk to you. I enjoyed our last conversation. I enjoy this conversation, and I hope it'll be one of many in the years to come. Well, thanks. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.
Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.